and welcome to Start Right Here, a podcast where we discuss breaking in, standing out, and the path to success in the beauty industry. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I hope the conversations I have with my guests inspire you to forge a path of your own. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. Today, I want to talk about inclusivity in a deeper way. Often we talk about inclusivity from a racial perspective, but there's a little bit more to it than that. And today I have a special guest. We're going to talk about her career, but we're also going to talk about her work in this space. So I am pleased to welcome Karen Williams, who is a producer, model, and pro-age activist to the show. Welcome, Karen. Thank you for having me. Can you give us a 30-second bio or a brief bio? Because it can go over 30 seconds. It always does. Well, you know, you said it so well. I am indeed a producer, model, and pro-aging advocate who has worked in several industries. I started modeling when I was quite young. I was 13. And I modeled through graduate school. And literally the week I got my graduate degree, I stopped modeling. And I then worked in film, I worked in television, and I also was able to start a nonprofit organization. I became very interested in advocacy. And from there, I went on to run a healthcare company. And about three years ago now, I returned to modeling after an almost 30-year absence. And I returned really because I was asked to. The reps that I had been represented by Ford Models They started an agency and a lot of their models from the 80s and 90s, you know, are still viable. They're still fabulous. And yet they weren't working. And so they thought, look, there's a really overlooked population of people here who are not being served. And we're going to represent them and represent the millions and millions of Americans and people all over the world who are above the age of 40. And it was that that tweaked my interest because honestly, I'm not a fashionista. I don't love beauty, love this, love that. I like looking at clothes as pieces of art. I like the utilitarian nature of fashion, if it can be utilitarian, but I'm not someone who lives and dies for fashion. That's not me. That's not me at all. But I understand the relevance that it has in terms of public perception of self and of others. And that's really what I wanted to do is come to be a part of the conversation because I felt that what would be overlooked would be people of color in this space, as we are always are often overlooked when we're talking about intersectionality. I wanted to make sure there was another voice added to the conversation. Well, I'm glad you decided to return because we do need your voice. Was modeling like a destination or a detour at 13? We don't really think of it as a destination, but how did you come to start modeling at such a young age? Right. It was definitely neither a destination nor a detour. I was with my mom in an airport in Toronto, which is where I partly grew up. And an assistant of Victor Skrabineski's was going through the Toronto airport and he approached my mom and I. And that's how I started modeling. He then facilitated an introduction to an agency in Toronto. I waited a couple years and represented Canada in the face of the 80s, which was Ford Models that they did that at the time. And I was repped by Ford through undergrad and grad school. So I had a very typical college life. When when I started at 13, I was in a very rigorous school. I have strict Jamaican parents who were very interested in what I was going to learn academically and, you know, socially and all that stuff. 
but certainly they weren't interested in modeling. So I did that as my own thing on the side, side, side that was never in the forefront. And I think that place that modeling had kind of set the stage for my involvement with it for so long. It has been such a blessing to be able to participate in an industry. And I was never a supermodel. I was never the top model, but I was always able to use it for what I think it's so wonderful for. And that is a sense of self-expression. It's creative in a certain way. I was able to represent perspectives because I also had a point of view and I never was neutered and told to stop talking about it because I was always studying. I was always thinking. I was always learning. I was always growing. So in reading periods, I would go and model. When most kids were studying at school, I would go and model. When I was at Brown, I went there for undergrad. I would do maybe two or three days on campus and then two days in New York. And that's how I pretty much did my undergraduate. And then when I went to grad school in England, I pretty much did the same thing. And then when I stopped, I was, I'm done. It served its purpose. I traveled extensively. I'd been able to contribute extensively to my school fees. And I had a certain measure of independence and exposure that I probably would not have had, had I not had that particular career. And you know what it also did? I think the greatest lesson that modeling did it allowed me to understand rejection. There's going to be someone who's taller, shorter, thinner, darker, lighter. Well, at that time, though, it was never darker. We need to get into that a little bit. That was the advocacy then. I mean, I'm anticipating your question, but I'll let you ask it. But I believe you're going to ask me about what were the kind of representations of Black women and men in fashion at that time. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. And then I also, I'm going to add twofold and then I want to have you answer. So I want to know the representation of what that looked like. You know, I saw it from a different perspective because I was working in the beauty department at L at that time. But I'm also interested at such a young age, what was your sense of self? You know, like you said you were able to deal with rejection, but a lot of times you were modeling at a time where people don't even have confidence a lot of times at that age. So how did you perceive the world of modeling that you were dipping in? And then school was your reality, home was your reality. But this other world, how did you see it? My parents were the ones who instilled confidence in me. Modeling was an adjunct. Modeling was an extracurricular activity. So my sense of authenticity and self was never defined or derived from this industry or, in fact, any other industry. They were reflected in who I was raised by. And I felt that I could do anything that I wanted. My parents gave me the agency to know that I had to work hard. And I was a good person. They were also equally as concerned the character of the person that they were helping to put out into the world. And so I never looked for definition from the industry. And maybe that's indirectly answering your question. It didn't affect me. It was an extracurricular sport for me. I took it very seriously and I was very professional when I did it, but I never took it on and it didn't become me. Right. It wasn't your identity. You can see that a lot of times in fashion, beauty, and entertainment, people take on title as identity and they're not able to separate it from self. But what it sounds to me like you never fell victim to that whole mentality. You were able to just look at it as this is a job. I'm who I am, no matter what you say. And I continue to be who I am. But let's get back to the question that you thought I was going to ask about what Black representation looked like then. So the models at the time, this is in the early 80s, yeah? Sheila Johnson, 
Beverly Johnson, Iman, Khadija, Munya, Pat Cleveland, Alva Chin. So those are the pictures of the women that I would see all the time. They were gorgeous. And then there was a younger crop coming up, Roshamba, Gail O'Neill, Lana Ogilvy was a little bit younger than, you know, that second wave, so to speak. Kara Young, Karen Alexander. So there were lots of women who I knew of. And interestingly enough, I never worked with any of them because I didn't do runway. And again, I always have to remind people that I was almost on the periphery. You know, 17 Magazine, I did a lot of 17. I did a lot of catalog. I did a lot of Clairol and you know, nice and easy and those sorts of things. So I didn't have opportunities to interact with the other black models where I'd probably see them on shows. I'm not very tall. I'm just barely 5'9". So that's really not very tall, especially at that time. There was no Kate Moss. And I also contend that I'm not so sure if the industry would have made an exception for a shorter model the way they did with Kate Moss. I'm just speculating. I don't know. Right? So we didn't see fuller figured women. Peggy Dillard was not full figured at that time. Um, Natural hair was just beginning to be a conversation. I remember when I started transitioning from modeling and I did more TV, I was often the first to wear natural hair on a soap opera, the first to do it on a commercial for this brand, the first to do. It was always a series of firsts because that wasn't happening. Now it's, of course, ubiquitous. So the models were, I could see them doing, you know, a lot of liquor ads, a lot of cigarette campaigns, both of which I opted not to do. And not for any judgment against anyone who was doing it, but you know what? Even from that stage, I was very cognizant of the proliferation of liquor stores and cigarettes in communities of color. And I come from a medical family. I don't want to be part of that. I don't want them to say, Lord, Karen, I saw your picture and you promoted this and that. And I have nothing against people who did it. But that was not my choice. But that was really where a lot of the money was, right? So at the time, there was definitely talk of needing to have more representation of darker skinned black women. Some of those women I mentioned weren't light skinned, but they had to fight, like fight hard to really get noticed. You know, there was a glamour too, you know, I can't lie. I mean, you can imagine this is 16, my first summer in New York, and uh, there was Studio 54 and Dance Cherry and Xenon, and you wouldn't start going out till 11, 12 o'clock at night. That's when you start. Now you can imagine me, I probably had like some paper exam or something like that coming up, but I would still go and play with my friends. I never smoked, never drank, never did anything. I didn't touch anything, not even a glass of wine. I was that clean. And I would go and I would literally, you know, like Jennifer Beals go and like dance up a sweat and do a workout. And then I would just come home, shower and study and go back to Brown and call it a day. Did you see the industry addressing age at all during those times? Beside Carmen, the white woman with silver hair, the model, were there any Black older models? I don't recall. But you know something, too? I think that you see what you're interested in seeing. I would agree with that, yes. And so when I was 16, 17, 18, 19, 
I wasn't checking for a 50-year-old woman or a 60 or a 70-year-old woman or a man. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So they may be there, but I didn't see it. But that was not where my radar was. But they weren't there. Did you see it? Because I remember Carmen. Carmen was the icon in the aging space. And there was no Black equivalent to that at that time at all in the modeling space. Right. But can I ask you a question? Let me challenge you this now. Okay, so Carmen Delarifici, who you're referring to right now, there was never any Black equivalent at that time. Who's the Black equivalent of Carmen now in the aging space? Oh, no, there's still not. Who's the Asian equivalent in the Carmen space? Who's the Latin equivalent in the Asian space? There is still not. Hopefully, with us having these kinds of conversations, we can ask for it. We can expect it. In my conversation with Chesley Chris, we talked about how when a Black person won a beauty pageant, we didn't expect another Black person to win for years because, oh, we had that, or we thought too many in the lineup might go against us. But we look at it from a different perspective now. So her perspective is expect to see us every year. And I think that we can expect to see Black women position themselves as an equivalent to a Carmen. A Latino woman do the same. An Asian woman do the same. I mean, we're talking about indigenous women. Why can't we? And with the changing demographic of this country, all the non-white people will be the majority. And people talk about way into the future. It's already happening now with children under 18. Right. So what you're suggesting is it has to be consumer-driven advocacy that changes representation. It's consumer-driven. It's internal within organizations as well. Let's say if you look at what's happening with the reaction to the social justice reckoning and the reaction by companies, a lot of the changes are coming from employees within the organization saying we need this or vendors going to advertising agencies saying, I will not work with you unless you have in management or an inclusive staff. I think it needs to happen. But the issue that I keep on going on about is age is not considered one of the criterias for diversity and inclusivity. It's always left out. And until we do that, It will never be part of the fabric of inclusion. And so ageism did not start with fashion. It did not start with beauty. It is endemic to every society all over the world. It is especially prevalent in the United States because we are in a much more youth-obsessed culture than other places in the world. For example, Japan has the oldest population in the world in the workforce. What Japan had to do is they had to actually pull retired people from retirement back into the workforce because they needed workers. And that move showed them how they could do intergenerational workforce and what the results of those intergenerational teams would yield. And study after study has shown that when you gather people in intergenerational settings, whether they be colloquial or professional settings, it always yields greater productivity and a greater sense of self and community. It fosters all of that, especially because we live in such separated, scattered communities. We don't have families all living oftentimes in the same space or very close to each other. And so we have to create that. This is the first time in global history that you have four generations in the workforce at the same time. 
And what we tend to do, because ageism works both ways, it can be against young people and older people. Absolutely. But to your point, there are more 65 and over people in the world than there are five and younger. And what are the implications of that? Not just in terms of how it impacts industries like fashion and beauty, but what about our infrastructure? What about our healthcare? What about the way that we even communicate and use the communication technologies? A lot of that has to change. And so going back to why it is important to add age as a criteria for inclusion and diversity, it then has ripple effects on so much else. It's not just, you know, oh, it's a good thing so that we can have an equivalent of Carmen in fashion and beauty. It's much more important than that because we're talking about not just one demographic of people, but several. Because to say that the 50 and over is one demographic is so erroneous. We don't say that the 10 and over is one demographic. We don't compare a 10-year-old to a 20-year-old, but we're constantly comparing a 50-year-old to a 60-year-old to a 7-year-old. In terms of fashion and beauty, why I decided to start here with my advocacy, I kept on hearing how the problem was because of the media. It's the media's fault that we have all this ageism. Ageism did not start with the media. Ageism is in every single industry. It is so endemic to so much of our societal fabric. We need to go in and change our internalized bias as well as all of the systems that have that embedded in the structures. Like if you apply for a job, the algorithm is set up that if certain years come up that you're automatically out of the running. All that you've said is spot on and very, very serious. And the point you made about you don't compare a 50-year-old to a 60-year-old, everybody is not the same. How do we create change, like meaningful change? I think that having conversation is the beginning But I also think it's incumbent in all of us individually to question our own biases. There was a wonderful campaign that AARP did with another entity whose name I'm forgetting. And it's about, you know, when we make a qualifier, oh, she looks good for her age. Or gosh, he's all right for his age. Why for their age? She looks good, period. He looks fine, period. Stop. That's it. Or oh, I could never dye my hair because I don't have a face that's young like that or I'm having a senior moment. Can I tell you that my nephews, when they were five and six and 10 and 12, they were having more senior moments than any senior I've ever met, right? Forgetful, absent-minded, but it's how much of that we have also internalized. When we see an older person and whatever that means to you, what are the associations that we have with that person. I think we need to have a more nuanced appreciation for what aging is within ourselves. That is the first thing, because it has to start with self. We need to identify it within ourselves and then we're able to externalize it and become part of a community of voices that says we need more representation. Well, first of all, I totally agree with Michelle Lee from Allure Magazine when she got rid of the term anti-aging. And it's unfortunate that other magazines and brands did not follow suit. You know, saying, oh, it'd be too difficult. We would lose so much of the consumer base. We would do this. We would do that. The bottom line is often, you know, it's economics, right? It's money. But 
how does change happen unless we agitate and disrupt the structure that is no longer working? And at a time like now, when so much is being upended, everything is being disrupted. If we don't start to incorporate age and ageism, if we don't start to have that conversation as we are having the other conversations in tandem with it, we would have lost this opportunity when the spotlight is on how can we be more circumspect in changing ourselves and our society. Start Right Here is brought to you by Beauty Biz Camp, where we equip and inspire the next generation of industry leaders. Head over to our website, beautybizcamp.com, for more information and sign up for our mailing list so you can stay in the know about our upcoming programming. One of the things that's interesting is when you said the industry responded, we can't do that because we have so much money invested in it. We spent the money investing in convincing women in their 20s and 30s that they were going to get old and it was a bad thing, that they needed to stop it with these anti-aging products that young. And you made people afraid of being older because it's somehow a bad thing. So we've created this atmosphere. But at the same time, we're living in kind of an age of transparency and younger people look at life differently. I look at, there's a brand called Topicals and the founders are BIPOC. One is black and one I believe is Asian. And they call their acne product funner flare-ups. So acne is not something that you need to hide and there is nothing to be ashamed of. You know, it's almost like we need to take a page from their book and be loud and be disruptive in that way and push for the change. But we've got to know we want to do it as opposed to, I don't know about you, but often I'm around people that they buy into what has been said and they start calling themselves old and acting as if their time is over when it's not. And how much of that is because of other people or is it genuinely that they're feeling tired? Maybe they're just tired or burnt out. (laughs) Right, right. But they don't know what it is. So they're thinking, I'm old, so I should just stop as opposed to stop this and do something else. There's a difference. The visibility issue, personally, I think is different for women of color, for women who are not size two or six. The invisibility factor gets upped even more. And of course, as we get older and advance in our years, which is a privilege to be able to be older, everyone doesn't get to be older. And it's something that we need to embrace as opposed to run away from. Yeah, I often say that aging is living. And if we're anti-living, then that's the message that we're sending when they say anti-aging. And I think we really need to dismantle this whole idea around ageism. But we have to realize that we're going to be challenging money. The anti-aging industry has made zillions of dollars off of that fear that we've instilled. We've just sucked up. Right. We absorbed it. <laughs> Completely. And also the pharmaceutical companies have made a mint out of disability. But not to say that we don't need drugs and medicine is not important. It is. But I think that anti-aging and the whole fear-based association with aging and the association with aging and having to have more pharmaceuticals in one's life, that's not the only picture. And going back to, we just need to show a more nuanced view of aging so that it's honest, 
See, there's a real balance here, right, between being aspirational and someone who knows all the tricks of the trade. I know all the tricks and I can work with fabulous teams who can do all the tricks to work their magic. But then I'm always on the other side, wait a second here. What is the message that we're giving out that I don't want to be in an arrested development who is defying mother nature? First of all, there's nothing that's perfect. And that's a misnomer that we should never propagate because it's a false aspiration to be perfect because it doesn't exist. We need to embrace imperfections. I say I'm perfectly imperfect. And we should be able to honor our own challenge and others. But again, in a hyper-mediated culture, especially on social media, where so many people can curate these lives and existences of perfection, and I may have access to the tools, I don't use all of them all the time, but there's so many people who are making a living propagating lies. And so they see this wonderful feed of all these perfect, quote-unquote, photographs, and you're like, what? You're... 60 or 70 or 50 and you don't have this so that you're so happy you're so this you're so but that's the lie they're selling that's the wonderful picture they've curated and it's great that they're able to have access to the tools but at what point do we have almost a responsibility to come clean and it allows other people to also see our humanity in a sense and connect because we're all Flawed. And that should be okay. What's wrong with wrinkles? We were told that we shouldn't have them. That's what's wrong with it. But there's nothing wrong with them. It is filtering out the noise because a lot of those kinds of messages are noise. So if you're unable to filter out the message and you're not in tune with yourself, a lot of times the stuff that we're watching on social media is so that we don't have to think about ourselves or our own lives. And we're entertained by all of this stuff. We're not thinking about what's happening internally. And step one is actually knowing yourself. You can't care for somebody you don't know and you don't know what your needs are. So there has to be some value in being still and quiet and understanding who you are and what you need. And if you don't do that and you're distracted by the noise, you're just going to keep getting sucked up in that. And you're not going to be able to be authentic. But if you are able to get in touch with yourself, that's why I like that topical that the younger people that are showing their acne progress or their breakouts on like Reddit and all those other places, because this is who I am. I'm not trying to like show you what happens when I have the medicine. This is how I live. We need to take a page from that in some respects. And it doesn't have to be on social media, but maybe we apply it to our lives. Right. I think that it's an interesting thing because everyone's comfort level with what they reveal about themselves is different, you know, and we ought to respect that. But I often wonder, is the feeling of invisibility, is it hiding? Interesting. Right? Is it hiding? Or is it truly being ignored and feeling not seen? I think there's a bit of both. As you said, when you're a certain age, you're just looking for what you're looking for when you were 13 or 16 or 18. You're looking for things that interest you. So somebody older might not interest you. So you're looking past them to the shiny, pretty thing that's in front of you. You know, shiny, pretty things always get us at different ages, whatever that shiny, pretty thing is. But I think that hiding is one end of the spectrum. That's what we do to ourselves. But what society does to us is the invisibility, I would say. 
I did a series of interviews, a project called I Am. It's for the I Am movement. And I interviewed women between the ages of 50 and 100 plus. And the invisibility question came up a lot. And one of the interviewees said, you know, I refuse to be invisible. You know, I'm not taking that. I'm going to be noticed. And that was her personality. So I understand that it also can be some personalities are more sort of vociferously in your face about their demands and their needs and wants. And others, they have to find their way in so that they don't feel invisible. But it kind of relates to your previous question. It's what authenticates you? Because whatever authenticates you is how you're probably going to be seen the most. And so that's the thing. I'm constantly inspired by things that keep me growing, keep me learning, keep me questioning, keep me building. And that I feel like is a lifelong quest and journey. And for the people who are my elders, who I've been sitting at their feet learning from, I've seen them do the same thing so that I've seen them reinvent and reimagine and explore and dream and grow, even when their bodies may be you know, going through changes or they've encountered different setbacks, they've been able to go through this wonderful series of reinventions and reimaginations and their curiosity doesn't age. That's the thing that keeps on getting even richer as they've gotten older. I think that with that curiosity doesn't age, the people who that is true for continue to have vitality for life. Even if they don't have the same mobility as they once had, there's still that curiosity and the quest for learning new things helps them kind of like reinvigorates their life in lots of different ways. And I think that that's something that we can't discount. Absolutely. And also, you know, it's something that I've thought about a lot, and that is that we as people of color need to be careful that we don't buy into the white Eurocentric perception of aging, which is fear-based. You know, we come from communities that have intergenerational representations of beauty and love and connection. And so why would we then turn around and be fearful of the journeys that we've witnessed all our lives? Starting modeling so young, it really made me privy to how much bias there was against darker skinned women and fuller size models. And that took a while and a long bit of advocacy, finally, for us to see it happening on a bigger scale. And I'm just careful and I'm asking people to be really cautious about buying into another's aesthetic about the aging living process that may not be organically where we are in BIPOC communities. Because every BIPOC community reveres the elders. They do. Right. It's very true. And so why would we then turn around and say, oh, man, I'm getting old. I can't handle this. And I'm going to start getting this thing and that thing and that tweak. Our elders didn't do that. If someone wants to go ahead and, you know, look however way, do it. Be free to do you. But it has implications on the place that we put the elders in our society. We don't look at them pejoratively. We don't discard them and want to hide them. We want to engage with them. We want to have exchanges with them. We want to love them up and respect and revere them. And also that we appreciate and cherish their contributions to our lives. Can you tell me a little bit more about the I Am Project and what you're doing with it? 
it's a fait accompli. So there's a photographer, her name is Angelica Butner. She started to take photographs of women who were over 40 initially, but ended up being over 50, really nude photographs. So there aren't nudes. And she is a fashion photographer who noticed the absence of unphotoshopped images of women and especially older women. And she wanted to say, well, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. We need to find beauty in mature faces and mature bodies. So she then started in Europe. She's from Germany and was living in France at the time and started to photograph women there. And of course, when she relocated to the United States, found a very different reaction because, of course, nudity is perceived differently here than it is there for the most part. But she still got women who participated on their own terms. They would agree to the photographs. They're not salacious. I'd worked with her on a different project as a model. And she asked if I'd participate. And initially I was like, you know, I don't have a problem about nudity, but I don't walk around naked in front of my family. Why would I do it for strangers? That's been my position. But I said, but if you want to shoot something that celebrates vitality and other things, as opposed to the stark nudity, and I have to approve it, then I'm fine. Then I shot with her and I said, what are the women like? And she was telling me about the different women. And I said, well, you need to interview them. And she said, how do I do that? I said, I'll do it. And that's how it started. It was very low tech the whole time and low tech by design because we wanted to preserve the intimacy. The sessions were just between Angelica and the woman. And so to bring in another element would lose potentially that intimacy. So we shot with an iPhone. We have little bit of external mic and it was just Angelica with the iPhone and me having conversations with women. I never met them, never knew anything about them. I didn't want to because I wanted to document an exchange between two women, both different ranges over 50, but it really being an organic conversation that was unscripted. Because I think that with the advent of more technology, one of the downsides is we sometimes lose a little bit of intimacy and spontaneity. And I wanted to have that. So we created this series and it's on YouTube and it's I Am Conversation. So it's a conversation series in which I interview 20 different women and they just tell their stories. The key is for them eventually to describe their I Am. And fascinating responses, fascinating insights into the journey of if aging, and each of them were different. That's great. I'm going to include in the show notes a link to the YouTube so that people who are listening can take a look. Let's talk a little bit about gray hair, because the reason I discovered you is because Robin Lee put your article up and I was like, I need her for my podcast. (laughs) And someone had interviewed you at Vogue about your advocacy, but also your hair care, like what you do to maintain your hair. Why do you think that we are so hung up on going gray? Again, because I think the internalized and systemic ageism, uh, we associate gray, silver, white, hair with being old. We, in a general sense, are fearful of aging. And there's a little bit of sexism with that as well, because we know that when a man is gray, especially in the media, oh, he's a silver fox. But the woman, why didn't she dye her hair? Why didn't she color her hair? How could she do that? COVID has been great because it's forced people to go longer periods of time to really see what their roots look like. And I think that somehow... Maybe because of where we are globally, 
with so much going on. There's a freedom that people are experiencing about not having to go and get it colored. I agree definitely that it's both. And it may also be, as we spoke earlier, about being kind of seduced by youth culture. Personally, like internally, you're chasing youth culture. You know, we say 40 is the new 30 and like we just trying to make ourselves younger. And so the little dash of that included in that thought process. You started modeling again, in addition to the other projects that you're doing with your gray hair. So what has the response been now to you? It's been really positive. I'm constantly positive from different tiers. I'm certainly busy in terms of clients. And because of social media, people who I don't know approach me. And the thing I hear more than anything else is that it gives them permission to explore their own gray hair or not be afraid of getting gray. And I'm just me doing it. And so it's challenging without intentionally meaning to do so. The response has been that I'm challenging what people associate with gray hair just by being me, you know, and I want to introduce them to, well, there's this person and that person and that person, because there's a whole tribe of gray hair people who would challenge them even more. Right. We talked about what you saw in the industry. Now let's talk specifically about fashion and beauty. Have you seen the fashion and beauty industries addressing the various demographics over 40? They're beginning to. You know, it's a slow burn. For a while, when I first started back, I couldn't understand how some of the labels who are run by women who are well over 50, whose names the companies like are named after, they have no women who are their age or men who are their age wearing their clothes. The disconnect was just so palpable and I just couldn't understand why. But then someone said to me that, is it because they may be the figurehead, but they don't actually own the businesses? They're owned by white younger men who tend to have a different aesthetic. So I don't know. It was just strange. But now I don't know if it's because they're understanding the buying power that the over 50 consumer has. And it's hard to deny it's really impossible to deny. And so we're beginning to see oftentimes a white woman with silver hair, right? But we're not seeing a sister. And the thing is, is that when I walk into a room on a modeling set, my first thought is, where are the black folks? My second thought is, there's no order, Latin, Asian, you know, indigenous. I want to see the world that I live in. This was my problem with Sex in the City. I never saw the New York that I know and live in. And I want to go into sets and not have to like wonder, well, where is the, where is the beauty is beauty. It should be all ages, all races, all cultures. And until we get to that point, it will always have to be someone disrupting and and forcing those doors to open. And I have not seen that in the space. Now, it doesn't mean that only people with silver hair who choose to not color their hair are represented. But I'm saying that I don't know for people of color who are models in the fashion business, I don't know if there's enough representation across the board. When I'm on a set, I will fulfill two quotas, maybe for being Black 
and then having silver hair. So two for one. Right. And there is a checklist. And they may not have enough space. There is a checklist. You know this. There's a checklist because you want to be sensitive to inclusion, but you're, I'm not saying all companies are not authentic in their work, but they want to be performative and show that they're doing the work, but it's not as important as it should be. So those are the people that have checklists. So, okay, we're doing the right thing. Uh, let's say we got a black person. Okay. Do we have LGBTQIA? Okay, check. And we have to walk the walk. I really believe that, you know, you can tell brands that walk the walk. Like what brands walk the walk to you? In terms of being who they are, I think Eileen Fisher is who she is. And then beauty brands, I'm going to shout out Lori King and the care brand because they're disrupting menopausal skin. And Lori's a black woman and her partner's Asian. So it's looking at the space and saying, why is this a problem? We should be talking about this. So there need to be more opportunities and there need to be opportunities for them to be funded, to be on shelf space, to be able to do their production runs if it's clothing. And I think that you know, Aurora James's 15% pledge has certainly, you know, opened the door for that kind of thing. But to your point, um, is it just performative? And is it a trend that's going to die off once this wave has passed? Is Black Lives Matter really going to translate into something that's sustainable for the brands to have a sustained commitment across the board? And will that also translate to BIPOC representation on all levels in fashion and beauty. And then we won't have to have this kind of conversation. We can just talk about beauty in a very general sense. Right. I just listened to a talk Aurora James gave to Harlem's Fashion Row. And I was very impressed by the auditing that she's doing of the people that have set up to be part of the 15% pledge. And she talked about how Yelp wanted to do it. And they might not be a traditional company, but they figured out a way in which they could be part of it, which I thought was really interesting. But she's looking at it as a long tail thing. This is not a one and done thing. This is long tail. We're going to be looking at this over the course of many years to see your trajectory and to see if you fulfill what you've set out to do. And I think that people who are performative will fall off. But brands who are very serious about this commitment they have to be in it for the long haul because also we're in an age where consumers have a voice and many companies have gone direct to consumers. You know, but you know what I'm surprised at? And I've been waiting for, again, age to be included in that conversation. So I don't see Aurora Jane's talking about age. No. And so it's the one ism that impacts every single race, every single person. And yet it is probably the most overlooked-ism. And I'll just wrap this up by saying that if we figure out a way to make age a very central part of our inclusivity and diversity conversations, we'll probably also just by definition, or by default rather, address ableism. Because the connection between ageism and ableism is tremendous. If we create systems and structures and societies that are good for people to age in place, generally speaking, those are places that have looked at ableism and disability and says, we're going to figure out how to make this work. 
that really made me think about fashion and beauty companies are being challenged by their websites, by people who may not be able to see, who may have visual challenges, who may have auditory challenges. And even fashion companies are being challenged by people who have adaptability challenges. And then there's a litigious part of it that some people are suing these companies who are not making their wares, their sites, their information available to all communities. So there is something to be said about how we think about inclusion going forward. Absolutely. This is that we need to expand the definition and think more broadly. Absolutely. So what do you think about how gray hair shows up in different generations? Well, to me, it's been really interesting to see the younger generation, a lot of them adopting gray hair as a style statement. So, you know, you saw Kim Kardashian with it. You saw Kelly Osbourne. And I don't know if they were dyed or extensions or whatever that was, but they in many ways made it fashionable. And what I saw a lot happening was a lot of people who are older, it kind of gave them permission to celebrate their own grace. So we're actually learning inversely from a generation in a way that was unexpected. This is the kind of intergenerational cohesion and exchange that I think is so important. We are living in a time when the younger generations have been the ones to push for the Me Too and Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter. We've certainly done other things, but they've been the ones at the forefront. And even in the silver movement, if you will, to say that it's a style and to give older people permission to celebrate themselves and to show up as authentically them, that's been really interesting to me. So for those of you who listen to this podcast or not, you know I usually ask about products, but this is not that conversation. We're not asking about products today. I think it would be disingenuous for us to go into that space just because of the quality of this conversation and the subject matter. And I really want to just keep it as that. I want to thank you so much for just your thoughtfulness, your ability to make me think about this whole notion of inclusion differently. It's almost like pushing even me forward in thinking about the demographics over 50, because I don't want to say older people anymore. It's like I have a whole new way of saying things. And one of the other things that struck me is, are we hiding or are we invisible? Like that's deep. So there's a lot. And even if you are not 40 or near 40, this is a conversation that you should still be interested in because if you're fortunate to reach this age, you're going to want to refer back to it. Absolutely. It's a privilege. Living is a privilege. Aging is the most natural thing in the world once we're born. Like when people say positive aging, every day you're living is positive aging. Because once we start to put a qualitative term before or around aging, it becomes a judgment and it puts people in a comparison with someone else. And there's no comparing. We're not in a race. We're just trying to honor the days that we have, where we are with appreciation and gratitude. So with my appreciation and gratitude, I thank you so much for being on the show. This has been phenomenal. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show for today. 
Remember that there's more than one way to the top, and the most important step is the first one. So start right here.